Hello and welcome to Dior Common Thread. In this series, we'll explore the constellation of creatives around Kim Jones, Dior Men's Artistic Director, who has masterminded some of the most dynamic and exciting collaborations in fashion. I am Ed Tang, co-founder of Art Bureau, a New York and Hong Kong-based art advisory, and now your host. In each episode of this show, I'll be bringing you conversations with some of the artists who have collaborated with Kim at Dior. From art and fashion to nature and technology, we'll discuss their influences, creative process, and everything else. Today, I have the great privilege to speak with the incomparable Stephen Jones, whose striking creations over the past four decades have graced the heads of royalty, rock stars, and fashion renegades alike. A legendary milliner, Stephen has one of the longest and most extraordinary resumes of anyone working in fashion today. Wildly inventive and always with a sense of humor and wonder, Stephen has been at the forefront of fashion since launching his line in 1980. Since then, he has become a serial designer, collaborator, speaker, author, and curator. He has also served as artistic director of Hats at Dior for more than 25 years. In short, it wouldn't be an overstatement to say Stephen's work has brought the age-old world of Hats into the 21st century. Now, on to today's episode. Hello and welcome to the show, Stephen. Let's talk Hats. Well, of course, I'm not going to talk about... Well, I could talk about shoes, I suppose, but... <laughs> we can. Christian Dior himself wrote in his little dictionary of fashion that a hat is the best way to express your personality. So it's not something you just put on your head. You've also said that hats are all about the fabulous lie. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Well, fashion is so often... I mean, it can be about protection, but it's so often about a wonderful illusion as well. It's an illusion that you're a normal person and you want to be somebody fabulous, that you're a 16-year-old guy and you want to be a pop star, you're a mum and you want to be a princess. And hats underline that equation even more, I think. So, you know, the, the you know they, they turn an outfit up to number 11. It never stops <laughs> at number 10, it goes up to 11. That sense of illusion, as you say, the sense of fantasy and marvel, has been integral to your work throughout the years. Indeed, you've made hats out of some very unusual materials, from paper to metal, wire, fabrics, plastics, resins, and even one with dry ice in it. Is there a material that's off limits? No, I mean, it can, really can be anything at all. I mean, the wonderful thing about hats is that they don't need to be boil wash, and you can literally use anything. I mean, the most perfect hat is a leaf, a living leaf, or a rose petal. What's more beautiful than that? But at the same time that you can use something extraordinary and modern as well, you know, something which lights up, a hat which is kinetic, the biggest challenges, in a way, are the greatest, most classic fabrics. So there is nothing as pure a black as black velvet. There is nothing so fresh and spontaneous as white cotton pique. But to actually make hats in those fabrics is exceedingly difficult. I think what's interesting now, um, talking in 2022, is just to combine you know, the ancient and the modern. Um, it, it's, it's somehow that melange which gives something which looks, I don't know, spontaneous, um, 
refreshing, optimistic, all those things that a hat should be? Well, it's something that can be either very poetic or almost absurd. I believe the first hat you ever made was made from a cereal box and some glue and an old blouse from your sister. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. <laughs> That's the first hat I ever made. And that was my um, overture to going into the millinery workroom. Basically, I'd been uh, working in the tailoring workroom. This is a very old-fashioned couture house called La Chasse, where various designers like Hardy Amy's had trained. But I... Um, didn't enjoy the tailoring so much and I saw there was a millinery workroom next door and the lady who was the premier, the head of the workroom, said to me, have you ever made a hat? How can I judge if you can come into my workroom if you had not made a hat? She said, make one this weekend and show me on Monday morning. So that's why it was a cereal box and an old blouse of my sister's and some glue and a, a, a plastic rose too. And the rest is history, as they say. There is this sense of occasion, of dressing up and formality that a lot of people associate hats with. Royal Ascot comes to mind, which arguably is the biggest hat event of the year. Is it fair to say that hats are inextricably British? Well, when I was growing up, I always thought the mystique of hats was something which was particularly Parisian. And that's something which I find fascinating about Dior, for example, is I always try and give them the Parisian touch. But I'm, I know that I'm wrong, <laughs> and the rest of the world <laughs> thinks that hats are, are British. And it's largely perceived because of Her Majesty the Queen and how she always wore hats as a child, and it became a great signifier of her monarchy. Of course, we were all watching on television mm. scenes of the Platinum Jubilee celebrations, and yes. it was hats galore. Um, yes. So much of it has to do with traditions, I suppose. Hats yes. can be elegant, they can be daring, even ridiculous. Tell us about this performance aspect of hats versus reality. Well, I would interject there that you know a, a baseball cap is just as valid a hat, a beret is just as valid a hat. Um, but obviously, if it's a formal event, you're going to be wearing a formal hat. Therefore, a beret wouldn't be appropriate in the same way that a large straw hat like Duchess of Cambridge was wearing would not be appropriate for picking up a child on the Monday morning from school. There's a hat for every occasion, essentially. Absolutely, a hat for every occasion. I think, for example, the hats that you saw for St Paul's Cathedral were completely appropriate. I mean, everybody knew it was a tribute to Her Majesty and it was a tribute in also what she wears. So that's why people were wearing hats, being appropriately dressed. But also, I think that the whole idea of being correctly dressed and a hat being part of that and that tradition is something that we can dip into in a postmodern way but I don't know if anybody takes it for real anymore I mean there's very few occasions you can you have to do it like that um, but maybe 364 days of the year you're not wearing a hat well on that one day that you are attending a wedding or going to Royal Ascot why the hell not dress up I mean it's the perfect opportunity it does make you feel very special. And, and through hats, you've created your own world. Let's just go back to your roots. You've mentioned that living by the sea greatly inspired you as a child. You also looked at architecture in those early days. I believe it was the two cathedrals in Liverpool that made a big impression on you, that it was then you realised design was something extraordinary and powerful. Totally. I mean, where I grew up, my 
funnily enough, a little bit like um, Le Rumb, the villa where Christian Dior grew up. My bedroom overlooked the sea and to one side with the bright lights of Liverpool and to the other side with the, the mountains of Snowdonia. I lived on the little peninsula sticking out between the two. But with my school, we visited the Anglican Cathedral. And in fact, my great, great grandfather had provided the trucks for the stone to build it. And considering it was being built for 100 years, it, it was quite the contract to have. Um, but the Roman Catholic Cathedral at the other end of Hope Street was the thing which really fired my imagination. This was a circular cathedral built in a 60s way. And it, I mean, it looked like a flying saucer. It was the most extraordinary thing. And I loved seeing the design difference between the two places, but they were both sort of after the same God. Also, what I saw within the modernist concrete, which was highlighted by wonderful 60s, vivid coloured stained glass, was this torchère, like a very large candlestick, which was probably about 10 foot tall, two, two, two and a half metres, which was gilded baroque with angels and seraphims and cherubims. And it was extraordinary. And I realised that this was essentially a brooch on the building. I realised that maybe design could be applied to clothing in the way that it could be applied to buildings. And maybe the design of a car is not so different to the design of a clothing, which is not d different to the design of a church. That whole world of aesthetics suddenly started to make sense to me about age 10. So you mentioned the late 60s and early 70s in Liverpool. You then moved to London in, in or around 1974 and enrolled at St. Martin's, the breeding ground for fashion talent. What did it feel like to leave home from boarding school and arrive somewhere unknown? Well, I couldn't wait to get out of Liverpool. I mean, of course, the, the, the grass is all where everybody's always... If you go to a capital city, everybody's from somewhere else. Very few people actually grow up in the capital city. Whether we, if you talk to people in New York or Los Angeles, it's exactly the same thing. Um, but it was Bright Lights, Big City. I had... Uh, I was so looking forward to coming here. I mean, I, I'd been to London before. I'd visited the Caprice restaurant with my grandmother at a very tender age. I'd been to Claridge's, but never lived here. And I, my sister lived just outside London. And, um, but coming there, it was strange. In fact, when I actually arrived in London, it was 1976. And in 1976, that was the year of punk. And instead of it being this glitzy, fabulous city, sort of like Las Vegas or New York or something like that, it was absolutely ripped, Chaos. ripped apart. <laughs> ripped apart at the seams, yeah, and chaotic and exciting and new and raw. And I was very much part of that. You dived right in. London was the vortex of this mixture of fashion and music. And it was then you became a punk and, in your words, never looked back. Um, mm -hmm. You were in a group called Pink Parts and very much yes. became a regular. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did my research. Um, but you became a regular at the fabled Blitz nightclub. It was the infancy of the new romantic movement. Boy George was working at the coat check at Blitz. I think Steve Strange was holding court at the door of the club and you started making hats for friends there. And outrageous as some of those hats were, was it there that you learnt 
also to be pragmatic, because at the end of the day, you had to make hats that people could dance with. Yes, and that was always the big test. That's why my hats were always quite small. They were never big. They were never big brims or whatever. You had to be able to focus your intent on quite a small area. But the Blitz was an extraordinary place. It was just a place for like-minded people, people who really sort of appreciated culture and were your mentors, but in a funny way, your artistic competitors as well. I mean, we did things for each other because we just didn't think the outside world would be interested. And, and the, but the extraordinary thing was at the same time, this is when magazines like Terry Jones were starting ID magazine ID. Or, the, or the Face magazine started or Blitz, which was nothing to do with Blitz Club, started. And suddenly this was a media who was interested in us because the mainstream media absolutely was not, apart from the red tops, the scandal sheets, who very famously put George and Marilyn on the cover and said, would you like your son to look like this? And <laughs> and I, uh, uh, for, for shock value, um, I, I mean, looking back, it was an extraordinary school and I'm still friendly with some of those people even today. Um, but we just thought, we were doing what came naturally. We didn't really, we never imagined that just a few years down the line, haha, uh, people would be referencing these times as being the sort of flowering of club and youth culture. Moving on from your heady days, or rather nights, within a year of leaving college, you opened a shop in Covent Garden. Was it common for someone so young to do such a thing at that time? Not at all. And it was. I thought by chance, looking back, maybe it was because people believed in me. Um, but it was Steve Strange who ran the Blitz nightclub. He had a day job as well, where, working in the shop called PX, which was absolutely the place. There were two, pla there were two the places at that time. There was um, Seditionaries by Vivian Westwood and this shop called PX. Um, PX was a bit more clubby and Steve and Princess Julia worked there and they've just moved into a new property and the basement was free. I mean, the basement sounds very grand. It was about the size of a postage stamp with only one staircase down to it, quite narrow, in wood, completely unsafe. But I opened up a little hat shop there within a year of leaving college and Steve really arranged all of that and uh, I have him to thank certainly from the beginning of my career. I mean, that was 1980, which in the grand scheme of things doesn't seem that far away, but the fashion industry and the fashion world was vastly different. Let's just fast forward a little bit. Over the decades, you have worked with some of the biggest names in entertainment and fashion. Your list of clients and collaborators reads like the Encyclopedia Britannica, so I won't list them all. Why do you like working with others? Or is millinery something that depends on working with other people? No, I don't think it depends on working with other people at all. I think it depends often on what people are wearing. For example, when milliners often start sketching hat hats, they start to sketch just the hat. And I always say you have to start with the spine, start with the backbone, um, start with the body, because the head is attached to the body and the hat is attached to the head. And you can't think of it in isolation. But... Um, so, and because I did fashion at St. Martin's, I always think of almost as the fashion first of all, 
and then the hat second. I think that's how it would develop, really. No, that makes sense. I believe your official foray into fashion was through the designer Zandra Rhodes. Then in quick succession, you worked with the likes of Jean-Paul Gaultier, Terry Mouglet, Claude Montana. Is it different working with designers nowadays? No, it's still the same. And I think I was always interested in collaboration with fashion designers. It's such a privilege to be able to delve into the heads of the greatest designers of our time. It's fascinating to really find out what makes them tick. It's a, it's a unique privilege. I'm often there right at the beginning of the creative process. So I see it all the way through. And I see it through the ups and the downs, how at the beginning of the design meetings, you know, they say pink. And then at the end, it's black or it's 14th century and then it becomes space age. So that whole trajectory of how a design develops um, is completely fascinating to me. And sometimes I don't understand what the hell's going on. I mean, I really don't know what's going on. But if you believe in a designer, if you think they're good, which is why I'm working with them in the first place... I'll let them take my hand and lead me into the a garden of creativity, a garden of creativity that I don't know about yet. I know a standard of beauty or ugliness which is mine, but I quite like that to be challenged, and that's what makes it continually fascinating, even though I've been working in the business 40 years now, to always to be listening to the new thing, because as long as the world keeps turning there will be another season. Absolutely. And speaking of evolution, when we chatted recently in Los Angeles, you said something very interesting. It was about the role of the designer, as we now know, as creative director. So I think designers now are very different to how they used to be. And if you look back 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, there was Christian Dior, who was the great designer. There was Cristobal Balenciaga. There was Pierre Balmain. And they really did spend a month working on a sleeve. At least Balenciaga did. But today's designers have a very different job. And so that's why they are creative directors, because they're creatively directing the designers who work there. The accessory designers, the shoe designers, the handbag designers, the milliners. They're sort of pulling it all together almost like a producer does. Of course, they might have come up with the original idea, but it is such a volume of work now that it would be impossible for one person to do it themselves. I mean, it, it really is a completely different world. And the first person to coin that term of being creative director was Tom Ford when he was at Gucci. For example, at that time, it was just uh, Christian Dior. John Galliano's name was not particularly mentioned. It was just Louis Vuitton. Uh, Mark Jacobs' name was not mentioned. But then Tom Ford, it was Tom Ford for Gucci, and it was Tom Ford for Yves Saint Laurent when the then-called Gucci group bought Saint Laurent. And that was something completely new, to have a double name on the label. Um, and I think it was around this point that suddenly fashion started heating up in a way that it hadn't been before. And the, the role became of a creative director, not only designer. So it's fashion and business melded together. 
uh, in Fashion a big and way. Business, yeah. Yeah, but that's why those big houses still continue because it is fashion business. You know, unless Gucci had been good business, unless Tom had been a great businessman with various people, you know, it would not have existed. That's why Dior was good business and Balenciaga's good business because they still exist, even though their original creators died many years ago. Mm. No, it's fascinating. And for you, beyond designing hats for people and designers, you yourself have worn many other hats. You have launched your own fragrance. You've published books. You were appointed chairman of the British Hat Guild. You've worked on a number of films, including Atonement, uh, that very wonderful scene of Keira Knightley wearing that hat, and Julian Schnabel's movie at Eternity's Gate with Willem Dafoe as Van Gogh wearing that hat as well. You've also curated a number of exhibitions. What has been the most fulfilling or enriching to you? I don't know. Hopefully the next hat I'm going to make. (laughs) (laughs) It's the variety which I find so fascinating. I love curating other people's hats. You know, for example, I 10 years ago I did this big exhibition with the V&A or I just did one at the Christian Dior Museum in Granville in Normandy. So looking at other people's hats as well as my own, I find continually fascinating. And for example, working on fragrance. Fragrance to me is as evocative of hats as hats are. They're very, very closely linked. So all uh, all these other jobs, all these different things that I do make for a, a fascinating life. Of course, the big question is, the big question is, people often said to me, um, well, why aren't you doing clothes? You trained in clothes at, at college. And I have to say, it always niggled me that I wasn't doing clothes until I worked on the second collection with John Galliano at Sarah Schlumberger's house. And at that point, I realised with the, I think there was 16 outfits in that show and they are all black, apart from one pink ball gown, that John Galliano was a better dress designer than I was. So if he was going to be better than me, what's the point doing it yourself? (laughs) (laughs) And in an interview with this fashion writer, Susie Menkes, she asked if you considered yourself an artist. Do you? Well, maybe on a good day. Um, I think there's artistic aspects to it. I prefer, you know, the Japanese expression is just of a creative person. They don't really have the definition between designer or artist. So um, maybe I'll just tip my toes in Japan or take my (laughs) hat to Japan. Would you say you make hats primarily for the runway, for real-life situations, editorial purposes? Literally, my design brief has been walking the dog on a Monday morning to launching a ship to a hat for seduction you know it can be hats there are so many different hats out there and it's great to spread the word of all the different occasions that you can have a hat for and give people that dream because hats are not so much about the reality i mean of course they can be keeping you warm or keeping you dry or keeping the sun off your head but they're about the dream that you associate with them. This brings me to your other role, that of Artistic Director of Hats at Dior, a position you've held since 1996. I think it's captivated me since the very beginning. When I was a punk in 1976 in St Martin's School of Art Library, we 
used to hang out in there and I discovered a big box of Vogue's and Harper's Bazaar's from the 1950s. And I remember looking through them and seeing these photographs by Parkinson or Henry Clark or Avedon of models like Dovima or Barbara Golan and thinking that their extreme attitudes were just the same as Johnny Rotten's, <laughs> that actually there was no difference. Of course, one was a punk sensibility, the other one, but, you know, was very polished. Um, but in a funny way, Johnny Rotten was very polished as well. You know, nothing was left to chance. I never looked at it that way, but I suppose it does make a lot of sense. It was that sort of arrogance and, I don't know, complicity and assuredness, which I found so extraordinary. And of course, the credits on the bottom of the page said ball gown or by Dior, suit by Balenciaga, um, handbag by Jacques Favre. So the historical world of Dior had always been incredibly important to me. I mean, I w was less enamoured by Dior of the 70s because at that point uh, they were sort of going for an aesthetic that was as far away from punk as it could be. But I still knew that Dior was really the centre of fashion. And I think the first day that it, I walked into Dior and walked up those grey carpeted staircases and saw photographs, framed photographs on the wall of Monsieur Diorum, Marlene Dietrich and Eva Gardner. And this, that was really the centre of fashion. And I It thought, must have well, fired up your imagination and continues to do so. Absolutely. I mean, it's still the same today. And when I walk in there, it's like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> Aren't I lucky? <laughs> uh, and your work for Dior has been relatively behind the scenes. But 2021 mm. was a milestone. You celebrated the 25th anniversary at Dior. Yeah. And uh, in honour of that, you walked down the runway with Kim Jones after the finale of the men's fall, winter 2022-2023 show in Paris. Do you enjoy being in the limelight or is this something that you shy away from? No, I enjoy being in the limelight, but also when you're collaborating with the designer, the designer is the star. It's Kim Jones's show. It's not Stephen Jones's show. This is always very clear in my mind. A week before the show or a few days before the show, I might take hats out of my hat box and put them on a model and they will either pass or not. And it's not my decision. Is the creative director's decision. So I have, in a way, very much a number two role as opposed to being a number one role because it's the creative director doing that. Having said that, I had no idea that Kim was going to pull me out on the runway. And he said, oh, come and stand by me. And, uh, and, and then he said, you're going to come out with me. So spontaneous. Said, spontaneous. I said, I'm going to come out with you. I said, Why? And he said, because you idiot, <laughs> you've been here 25 years and it's worth celebrating. And then suddenly we were on stage and I could smell, smell the crowd and hear the roar of the grease paint. Well, it was a very touching moment. One of my favourite hats was the collection of hats that you made with the artist Peter Doig, who hand-painted, I believe, the bowler hats and berets. Um, if you were to grab three hats of yours from a fire, which would they be? Well, probably one of Peter Doig's. Uh, th that collaboration was 
so wonderful. I know Peter and I were at college together at the same time. When I first, my first season in Paris, when I was working with Thierry Mugler on his Zenith show, when Pat Cleveland famously got winched down from the ceiling dressed as an angel, Peter actually worked with me on that hat. And I, and I do remember saying to him, because he was spraying it to colour, saying, that's not the right colour. I should... You're an artist. You should understand about colour. And, of course, this was about four o'clock in the morning when he was working for free for me. <laughs> so I think um, I would probably grab one of his. Um, in my Dior hats, there's another hat, which is one I created for John Galliano, which is it's called um, Catch of the Day. And it's um, five sardines made out of embroidered green crocodile, embroidered by Lesage. And there's just something which is ridiculous and charming about, about that. And totally hat. surreal. Totally surreal. Well, I think a hat is surreal. Put anything on your head and it's automatically surrealism. I think because it's a, a disguise, it's a displacement, a hat. I mean, why on earth are you putting a flower on your head? You're not a flower bush. Why are you putting your feather on your head? You're not a bird. And the last hat you would say from a fire? The next hat I'm going to make, I don't know if it was one of my hats, it was a hat I made called Rose Royce, um, a little bit like the band, but it was a top hat made like a scroll and it happened to look like a rose as well. In a way, it's the most, it's velvet and satin, black velvet with dark burgundy satin, but it doesn't reinvent the wheel, but somehow it looks just lovely. There's been such a wide spectrum of clients and patrons from Princess Diana to Boy George, Cardi B, Tilda Swinton, Little Naz, and companies from British Airways to Fenty. Um, can you share some highlights and perhaps even the wildest commission you've worked on? They always seem to be fairly wild because they <laughs> always seem to be at the, the last minute. Um, I don't know, just when you mentioned them, British Airways, I remember doing the hat for British Airways many, many years ago, and it was a mad race. I wanted to have this hat which was inspired by British, by BOAC, by the hats that were worn in the 40s and 50s, but nobody could make hats like that anymore. And we were travelling the world trying to find out who could make them. Eventually we found somebody. But making a hat for Cardi B, uh, I remember working with Tom Brown, and she was wearing this huge outfit to the Met Ball. And she was supposed to be there at 11 o'clock in the evening. And then... We had a note at five o'clock in the morning that her plane had just landed because she was doing a concert the night before. And this poor girl came in absolutely exhausted, but we dressed her up and I put her hat on and then suddenly she became Cardi B. It was one of the most extraordinary transformations I have ever seen. But that's also the power of clothing that, you know, it can make you feel like the person you want to be rather than the person that you are. There's always drama in what you do. Um, you've also said something which I'd love to ask you about. You said you have to go out and network as much as possible. And now with the internet, the world is your oyster. What does networking achieve? And did it or does it still open doors for you? Well, it's very interesting because I can say that because I didn't exactly apply that to myself when I first started because I was always, always at work and turned down so many invitations. And I think that probably did not help my career at all. But 
slowly but surely, my friends used to drag me out and I used to meet people and network and sort of spread, spread the gospel about hats. And, and slowly that happened as well. But I think if you are a designer, you can't be struggling in your garret by yourself. You have to be out there, make contacts, make publicity, show, show your work. We have to be able to communicate, not only do the work, but be able to communicate about it. That's the way that the world works now. It's also about opening doors for others, as you do. For instance, working with younger designers like Edward Crutchley, I'm sure they absorb a lot from you. And there's this sense of mentorship as well. Yes, and it works both ways because I really learn from them, you know, uh, if somebody like Edward comes to me, and I need to listen because he has a point of view of somebody who's 30 years younger than me. Um, and it's a, he's gr grown up in a different world. So it's fascinating how much information or knowledge he has. Or somebody like Matty Boven, who is from a completely different world to me. Uh, and throughout my career, it's always been interesting to work with people who are young and just coming out from college, not because I can mentor them. Yes, I mean, I do that a little bit, but what I can learn from them too. If you think that learning is over, um, you will never progress as, as a designer. And I think that's, that, that's one of the, the great things about a milliner. And if you're a dress designer, you have to build this fabulous cathedral this city this whatever of your design and sort of shore it up um because the world of fashion design is so completely competitive what i love doing is flitting from city to city from cathedral to cathedral from design house to design house because i believe that the more you do, the more you can do. It enriches your experience and certainly, I think, makes you a better designer rather than just focusing on the one thing. But then, of course, I can come back to England and take all that experience and put it into the hats that I create for myself. Kim Jones called you the kindest mentor one could ever have, the eternal fountain of knowledge and fun. And I can see why. But I have no idea how you've continually pushed the boundaries and have such energy. How do you, in the world of fashion, ensure longevity and avoid burning out? Oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it is a hard life in a way, but it's also an incredibly privileged life. I mean, I have to say, if I had children, I would never see them because I do travel all the time. Because also, if you're a hat maker, you have to go to people as opposed to people coming to you, which is fine. I don't mind the change of scenery. Um, What's the secret of longevity? I think always being interested, just enjoying it. Um, I feel uniquely privileged. Well, it seems nothing has slowed you down. So hats off to you, Stephen. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing Thank with you. us the joy and power of headgear. I've been such an admirer and have so enjoyed our conversation. Thank you all for listening today. Please join us on Dior Common Thread on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Okay.